Bibles, if you would, to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, a few weeks back we started a series in the book of Esther. And I have, I have learned much uh, through this study, and I, I trust that you have as well. <clears throat> and can, can uh, anybody tell me what the purpose of the book of Esther is? The, the, the providence, or we could call the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. Over the last few weeks, you have heard me make that statement multiple times, have you not? Yes, oh, well, guess what? God's in control. <laughs> and, and, and guess what else? Until we're done with the book of Esther, you're going to hear it again and again and again. Why? Why, why is it so important that we are reminded that God is in control. Because we're human flesh and we and we want to do it our own way and God is constantly working in the background. God devoted an entire book. Well, actually there's more than just the book of Esther, but he devoted the entire book of Esther to reminding us over and over and over and over that he is in control. And we're going to see it again today. And we're going to see it again next week and next week. And the the fact is, <clears throat> that theme is really throughout the entire Bible, is it not? Amen. God is in control. Last week we <clears throat> spent time talking about the hatred that Haman had for the Jews. And this, this I called it a generational hatred. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. It says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did he reverence, uh, then, Haman, uh, 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 then was Haman full of wrath, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. In other words, he found out that, that Mordecai was a Jew. Uh, when uh, uh, Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom, and Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So what happened was, <clears throat> this guy named Mordecai uh, refused to bow to a guy named Haman, because he was an Agagite. And we talked about all this last week. We're not going to rehash all that. But my point is this. Generational hatred is a real thing. And it is passed down from generation to generation to generation. And if you didn't know this, let me help you. What is, what is going on in the Middle East today can be traced back to this. And, and even before this. But it's that generational hatred that hates anybody of a certain race, color, or creed. Now, I'm here to tell you that that is an absolute unbiblical way to live. Amen. Hatred in any shape, form is not right. Let me say that again. and, and I don't do this often, but I, I would like to hear a lot of amens when I say this. 
hatred in any shape or form is not right. Period. Now, I want to talk, before we actually get into the message a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about hatred for just just a minute because it is something that I have seen absolutely consume people. I've seen hatred devastate friendships over something stupid. I've seen family members disowned. I, I, I even know one, one young lady, well, she's not a young lady anymore. When I met her 25 years ago, she was a young lady. I was young then too. Um, but I know one lady that the hatred was so strong in her family, they had a funeral for her while she was still alive. I'm here to tell you that's hatred. I've seen hatred being willing to destroy someone else. Having that burning desire to destroy another person. Here we see it in the story of Esther. But here I want to tell you something. In 1 John chapter uh, 2, verse 9, it says, He that uh, saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. What, what, is, what, what, what is God trying to tell us here in 1 John? We cannot say, quote unquote, that we are Christians if we harbor bitterness in our hearts. Amen. Now we may be saved, but we cannot be Christ-like if we harbor bitterness in our hearts. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. Hatred can become an all-consuming fire beyond your wildest imaginations. I have seen it take people down roads that they would never dream in a million years that they would go down. A desire to hurt, to cause pain because they were hurt. I'm here to tell you, Hatred is a choice. Hatred is a choice. How many of you would agree that hatred is a choice? Raise your hand if you agree with that. Okay? Okay? If you agree with that, then you have to say also that forgiveness is a choice. You choose to hate or to forgive. You say, but pastor, you have no idea what that individual did to me. And and I may not. But it's a choice that you will make. I read a story recently that I I was not aware of. I remember the the incident, but I did not know the the, the story behind, behind, or the, the, the story that happened after the incident. Just before Easter in 2009, do you remember a pastor by the name of Fred Winters of the First Baptist Church in Maryville, Indiana, who was shot and killed during a morning service? I do. 
The tragedy shocked the church and the pastor's family, as you could well imagine, but it did not destroy their faith. The next week, the newly widowed Cindy Winters was interviewed on a national news broadcast. When they asked about her husband's killer, she said this, I do not have any hatred or even hard feelings toward him. Now, can you imagine saying that? We have been praying for him. Now, now wait a second. It's one thing not to hate. It's another thing not to have hard feelings for. And it's another thing to pray for the individual. Now I lost my place. One of the first things that my daughter, now get this, I, I was blown away when I heard this, when I read this. One of the first things that my daughter said to me after this happened was, you know, I hope that he comes to learn to love Jesus through this. We are not angry at all, and we really firmly believe that he can find hope and forgiveness and peace through this by coming to know Jesus. And we hope that that happens for him. I'm here to tell you, hatred is a choice. And so is forgiveness. I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, I I I can't forgive them. I can't forgive what they've done. I I really feel sorry for you if that's how you're living. Because I doubt that God's asking you to forgive anything near as bad as what happened to Mrs. Winter. See, Haman made a choice of hatred. And Mrs. Winter's made a choice of forgiveness. And I'm here to tell you that if, if you're not in the midst of that choice, you will be. Because life happens. People will let you down. And I'm here to tell you, your pastor will let you down. Hatred and forgiveness is a choice. Esther chapter 3 is a turning point, I guess, in the story of the book of Esther. The, the title of my message is, is simply The Wicked Plan. The Wicked Plan. Day after day, Haman, the, the, the fact that Mordecai was not bowing down to him, it just, excuse me, every day it just got harder and harder and and it, it, you know how bitterness starts as just a small kindle, and then it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Well, it got to the point where Haman was just absolutely incensed that, that Mordecai refused to bow to him. So he hatches this plan in his mind, and, and we're going to see this plan, his plan, unfold here in chapter 3. Let's start reading uh, well, let's just read verse 7. We'll just, we'll just do that. <clears throat> Chapter 3, uh, verse 7. In the first month, uh, that is the month of Nisan, 
in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman <clears throat> from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, uh, that is the month of Adar. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your love and thank you for the incredible reminder that you are in control. We love you and we thank you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. My first point this morning is the, the, he selected a day. He selected a day. Now, you, you think, what, what is the point of that? Well, it, it is actually very significant to the, to the entire story. Because what Haman does is he gathers together his musicians and his sorcerers and all of, all of his uh, supernatural uh, advisors, if you would, and he says, okay, I have a plan that I'm going to exterminate the Jews, but I need to know what day the quote-unquote gods say will be the best day. Now, <clears throat> in verse 7, it doesn't give all those details, but it gives us enough, enough details to know that that's what, what's happening. And also, history tells us that's how Eastern monarchs ruled. They would not make a major decision without consulting the quote-unquote gods. So what happens here, and it says that they cast per or lots um, to, to determine where to, what day uh, to move forward with uh, Haman's evil plan. But before we go there, I want to read you an example of what I'm talking about. Nebuchadnezzar and his generals could not decide on a campaign strategy uh, about a hundred years before this, this story of Esther. So Nebuchadnezzar and his generals are on the battlefield. They're, 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 they're trying to work out their strategy. And in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 21, it gives us a, a mindset, if you would, into the, mind, the, the thinking of the Babylonian uh, emperors. Okay, in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 21, it says, For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use, uh, uh, to use divinations. He made his arrow bright, and he consulted with his images, and he looked in the liver. So basically, this is confirming what Haman was doing. Before making any major decision, they always consulted the, the, the sorcerers and the magicians and, and so on and so forth. I'm sorry? Yeah, it was, it was common practice. So we see this playing out in verse 7. I have a, I have a picture for you here. Um, this <clears throat> is a purr. Um, what does it look like? Uh, it, it looks like a dice. And, and that, you know, in modern day society, this would be very, very close to a dice. Obviously, it's a little more complex than the, the numbers on a dice. But the idea is that the sorcerers, the magicians, would roll these, these purrs and then be able to tell the future and then consult or give, give advice to the, to the, to the emperors and, and so on and so forth. So that's what's taking place here in chapter 7. They, they take these purrs and they and they and it says here in verse seven that and uh, 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 before Haman from day to day from month to month 
So what they did is they first started and they said, okay, which day of the month is the best day for this to happen? So they roll the purrs and then they determine the best day. Then they say, okay, well, which month of the year do we need to do it? Then they did, then they did the same thing to determine the month. Does that make sense? Okay, good. <clears throat> Clear as mud, right? <clears throat> so anyway... See, this is important because in Haman's mind, what he's thinking here is, is a couple of things. One, it is, which month are they, are they doing this in? They're doing it in the first month, right? It says, it says uh, in verse 7, it says in the first month, which is Nisan, and then they settle on which month? The 12th month or Adar. So basically, they have roughly a year to put Haman's plan into place. Now, can you imagine what's going through Haman's mind? Oh, this is perfect. My, my gods have given me the day to do this. And I've got a whole year to watch these people squirm. I've got a whole year. And, and Haman is delighting in what is taking place. Haman is enjoying the torture that he is about to inflict. Because I'm here to tell you, hatred is just that way. That's what hatred does. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the heap but the whole disposing thereof is of what? The Lord. Because he is in control. See, God's in control. Now, did Haman realize that God was the one who manipulated the dice? No. But God is in control. Now, humanly speaking, Let's stop and, and separate us from the story because many of us already know the end of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. <laughs> separate yourself from the story for a second and put yourself in, the, in that room at that time. Who would you say was in control? Haman. He had it, he had it all. He had it all lined out. Everything was falling into place. Haman thought that he had it under control. But he had no idea that God is ultimately in control. And I'm here to tell you, we can look around our world today and we can see our world spinning out of control. Can we not? But I'm here to tell you, God is in control. If you haven't gotten sick of hearing that yet, you will. Well, actually, I hope you don't. See, Haman thought, wow, I've got 11, roughly 11 months to put my plan into place. But he didn't realize that God had 11 months to put his plan into place. Plans hatched in hatred 
never work out the way we want them to. Number two, he goes to the king and he requests permission. He requests permission. Let's look at verse 8. Haman said unto Ahasuerus, And there is a certain people scattered abroad and uh, dispersed among the people in all the province uh, provinces of thy kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and their laws are diverse uh, from all the people, neither uh, uh, keep they the king's law. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. Uh, if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hand of those um, that have charge of that business uh, uh, to bring it uh, unto the king's treasurer. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, uh, The silver is given to thee, uh, the people also, uh, to do with them as it seemed good unto thee. So what takes place here? Haman hatches this plan and he goes to the king. I find it interesting, number one, that he doesn't tell the king who these people are. He doesn't identify them. He doesn't say, hey, king, they're, you know these Jews that are spread throughout your kingdom are, are, are a menace. Why, why do you think Haman doesn't tell him that? It's because it wasn't true. The, the, the Jews were, were very peace, peaceful uh, parts of the Babylonian Empire. They were not rabble-rousers. Now, Haman, Haman or, or, or Mordecai was a little bit of a rabble-rouser, but, but uh, for the most part, the Jews were not, were not that way. In fact, his vague description of this, of this situation seems to, to communicate to the king a... Um, more dangerous situation than it really is. It, that, does it not? By being so vague and, and, and it's wording it the way he does, he does, <clears throat> Haman or, or uh, Ahasuerus falls into the trap relatively easily because he doesn't know all the truth. Isn't that what hatred does though? Hatred doesn't always expose truth. Hatred only communicates what it wants to communicate. I want to give you three things that every, and this is historically correct here, so there are three things that every Eastern king wanted, and only three things. (laughs) And that was to expand their empire, control, keep their power control, and to get richer. That, that's all these Eastern kings wanted. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much, yeah. The reality is, there was no threat to the kingdom, was there? It was a manufactured crisis that Haman manufactured to get what he wanted. The king only wanted money. So what happens when Haman tells the king, hey, you know what? If you will allow me the opportunity to extinguish this 
evil, wicked people group, I will be glad to give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if that, if that, what kind of impact that has in your mind, but <clears throat> as, I, as I was doing some study and some research, that the Greek historian Herodotus claimed that at that time, the uh, income for the entire Persian Empire, okay, now get this, the entire Persian, Persian Empire the income was 15,000 talents of silver. So in essence, when Haman says, hey, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver, he is telling the king that he will give him two-thirds of his annual budget. That's a lot of money. Yes, sir. So what does Haman do? Or, or what, what, is, what does Xerxes do, the king? He's like, here, have at her, pal. <laughs> he, 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 he very easily gives up his authority. Why? Because it's all about money. Verse 10, and the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to him and says, hey, hey Haman, go for it. Knock yourself out. How unfortunate. But, again, you need to understand the mindset of the Eastern kings at the time. It was all about money and power. Had very little. People, people didn't matter. People, people were expendable. And as we have learned in the book of Esther, Ahasuerus, the king, had a tendency to act first and then regret his decisions later. Now, how many of us live in that world? No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> we all do that. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 says, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is folly and a shame unto him. Point number three. We have seen this, the, the, the selection day, uh, his, request per, uh, his request for permission. And then number three, and this is, this is one that's really important, is the spreading that he spreads the word. He spreads the word. Let's, let's start reading in verse 12. <clears throat> and where the king's scribes, uh, then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors uh, that were over the providences and to rulers of every people and every province according to the writing thereof and to every people uh, after uh, their language in the name of the king. Uh, the, the name of king Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the uh, king's ring. And the letters were sent by post unto all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in, uh, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the, of the twelfth month, 
which is the day of Adar, and this, uh, and, and to take the spoil of them for prey. The copy of the writing for the commandment uh, to be given uh, in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. And the post was sent out being hastened by the king's commandment and the decree was given in Shushan, the palace. Here we see the distribution that takes place or the spreading of the word. Now, on the surface, in today's society, we don't think a whole lot about this, do we? Because how fast could the President of the United States get word to every governor of the 50 states of the United States, every military leader, and every government official of a decree if he wanted to make a decree? How fast could he make that happen? Within seconds, because of the society that we live in. How, how complicated do you think it was for this to take place? 127 provinces, hundreds of languages, hundreds of dialects within those languages, and this commandment had to, ha- had to be rewritten and rewritten probably thousands of times. Then it had to be distributed. Now, the, the, the Persian Empire did not rule the entire world, but a, a good majority of it. It would take weeks, if not months, for these couriers to reach their destinations. Hence, another reason why it took a whole year to pull all this together. But can you imagine the process? These writers, hundreds, possibly thousands of, 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 of Pony Express writers, if you would, taking off at all points of the compass. Every city that they would come to, they would have to post at certain places within the city these declarations. Then every town that they came to, every village, every hamlet, every crossroad had to be notified of the commandment of the king. Quite the extensive, that in itself cost the king a lot of money. Haman's plan, he thought, was unstoppable at this point. He thought, I, I, well, I, I'm assuming he thought, I've got him. There is nothing they can do to stop it now. And humanly speaking, he was right. Haman's wicked plan was starting to, to unfold, but he failed to remember or he failed to know that God is in control. It doesn't matter what evil, wicked plan is put in place. The sovereignty of God trumps anything man can conjure up. I find that to be incredibly comforting. 
because I can pillow my head at night knowing that God is in control. And then I want to talk about number four very quickly, his apathy. There's a couple statements in the very closing chapter or or verse, verse 15 of chapter 3. There's a couple statements here I want to focus on. Well, let's just go ahead and read the whole the whole verse. It says, And the post went out, being hastened by the king's uh, commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. Now, Shushan the palace, don't, don't, don't mistake this. It's not just the palace. It's the city that surrounds the palace. Okay, so you're, you're talking hundreds of thousands of people, more than likely, maybe up into the, up into the millions. Okay. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Apathy. Apathy had set in. Here Haman had signed the death warrant of literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And what did he do? He sat down and had a nice meal. Hatred will do that in the heart of a man. Apathy. If anything, if anything, Haman was probably very pleased with his plan. It was all starting to come together. The, the, the riders had been sent out. His wicked plan was starting to take shape. And there was no stopping it. And here he is being summoned to the presence of the king to have dinner. Little did he know, a few months later, it would be him who would die. See, we happen to know the end of the story. But I'm telling you, when we're in the thick of it, and the world is closing in around us, it can feel like the world's winning. But you know what? I know the end of the story. God is in control. Helen Keller said this. I don't quote Helen Keller a lot, but I like this quote. Science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of all of them, the apathy of the human being. And I'm here to tell you, do not criticize Haman, because apathy is alive and well in the church today. One of the things I've heard pastors preach on this passage and really rail on Haman and his apathy and his his hatred and all of these things, but I'm here to tell you there's two things that are alive and well in the church today, and that's hatred It has no business in the church in any way, shape, or form. And apathy. We are the most apathetic generation of Christians that has ever lived on the face of this earth. And before you point a finger at Haman and blame him for any of it, look at your own heart. In Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 34, we are given a great story 
in the New Testament to remind us of this apathy that can take place. And again, I'm telling you, it's taking place in the local church. And Jesus answered and said, And certain men went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead and by chance. Is there such thing as chance? No, the providence of God. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, uh, the understanding is by chance. When uh, uh, when he was in the place, excuse me, at at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. At least this guy stopped and looked. Ooh, ugh. But a certain Samaritan, by chance, there is no chance. Now, to get the impact of this, who were the Samaritans? They were, they were, they were the Amalekites, if you would, in the Old Testament. They, they, the Jews hated them, and they hated the Jews. But by chance, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he what? Had compassion on him. Now, did that Samaritan know that the guy in the gutter was a Jew? Absolutely he did. He, he had to have known. And, and They didn't look a lot alike. And they dressed totally different. How did... Just trust me, they know. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to get into another sermon here. Um, <clears throat> uh, and had compassion on him, and and went to him, and bound bound up his wounds, uh, uh, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his beast, and brought him uh, to an inn, and took care of him. And the story goes on that not only did he take care of him, but he 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 gave the innkeeper money and said, "Hey, you take care of him. I've got to go, but you continue to take care of him." And if if, if it costs more money than I've given you to take care of him, when I come back, I'll reimburse you. He knew he was a Jew. Yet, he had compassion. In June of 1865, missionary to China, J. Hudson, J. Hudson Taylor had gone to stay with friends at Brighton, a popular beach resort city by the sea. He was weary and ill, seeking the will of God uh, for the future of his ministry. On on Sunday, June 25th, and and remember this quote, unable to bear the sight of rejoicing multitudes in the house of God. Let me read this quote again unable to bear the sight of rejoicing multitudes in the house of God, he went for a walk on the sand and wrestled with God in agony of soul. God met with him in in a fresh way, and he trusted God to provide 24 workers to labor in China. Two days later, he went to uh, the London Country Bank and opened an account in the name of the China, the China Inland Mission. And by the way, it's still in operation today. God is in control. 
But what do you think Hudson Taylor meant when he said, unable to bear the sight of rejoicing multitudes in the house of God? What do you think about that for a second? What do you think he meant by that? Are we not supposed to be praising God when we come to church? Absolutely. But what Hudson Taylor was saying is you, the, the people were coming and they were going into church and they were singing praises and worshiping God. But when they walked out the door, their lives never changed. It sickened him to come to church and see the hypocrisy and the apathy in the church. It sickened him so much that he went out onto the beach and he wrestled with God and said, God, I need you. I don't need the hypocrisy, the apathy in the church. I need to walk with you. Apathy is alive and well in God's house today. There's a gospel song. I would sing it for you, but everybody would rush out the door. But the title of the song is this. My house is full, but my fields are empty. And I think that kind of sums up what Hudson Taylor was trying to say. My house is full, but my fields are empty. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Therefore, said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. John chapter 4, verse 35. Say not ye that there are yet four months and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already in the harvest. In other words, we need to get to work. There are people all around us that desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second phrase I want to bring up and then we'll be done. We see at the very end of verse 15, but the city Shushan was perplexed. The people could not understand the command, the dictate that had come down from the king. The king and the prime minister are having a party. They're having a good time. And the people in the city are going, what is this about? And every time I read the last part, let's see, the one, two, uh, three, four, five, the last six words of chapter three, I can't help but think of the world that we live in today. We live in a world today that literally wrong is right and right is wrong. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And it's getting worse every day. Now, honestly, how many of you are perplexed? I am. There are many days I sit and I, I, I'm just in, in awe of, of, the, of the, the, the irrational thinking that's taking place in our world today. And the people of the city of Shushan 
were sitting there trying to wrap their heads around thinking, what in the world is going on? This makes no sense. There was no threat. The Jews were not a threat. They were friends, neighbors, co-workers, and, and so on. And it wasn't just the Jews that were at, the Jews and the Gentiles. The entire city was perplexed. But, guess what? God's in control. You know, I, and, and I, I hate to spoil the story, but I've read the end of the book. And I, and I know what's going to happen. You know, my hope is not in Washington, D.C. I, I, I know I hate to disappoint you, okay? And, and it's most certainly not in Carson City. Amen. My hope is there. Amen. If, you haven't, if you haven't figured it out yet, grab your Bible, turn to the last book. Real, well, no, no, not now. I'm just, I'm just saying. When you get home... And really, just the last couple of chapters of the last book. And, you know, guess what? We win. Okay? Well, he wins, but because he wins, we win. We win by default. Okay, let's, let's bring this to a conclusion. We're done. Number one, we can see very clearly the hand of God moving in the affairs of men. But the only way you can see the hand of God moving in the affairs of men is after the event is done. Or we would say history. While you're in the thick of it, you don't always see that. In fact, very seldom do you see that. All you see generally is the circumstances in which you're living. God is in control. Number two, the sovereignty of God trumps anything a man can devise. Recently, I don't know if you follow information coming out of our nation's capital, but there was a very wicked, evil piece of legislation that passed the House uh, I, I, did anybody know that? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the, the Equality Act or something like that. That That is straight out of the pit of hell, by the way. Okay. But I got a text from somebody last week asking me if I feared the passing of that bill. And my response was, nope. Now, now, do I pray it doesn't? Do I, as, a, as, a, as an American citizen, work and do everything I can to keep it from passing? Absolutely. But do I fear it? No. I'll, I'll, you talk to me later and I'll explain it. Why? Because God's the one in control. Not, not Washington, D.C. Oh boy, trust me, I do. Number three, don't let apathy take over your life. It is so easy for us as believers to become apathetic. We walk through these doors on a weekly basis, we come in and we sing our songs and we and we fellowship and we visit and we do all these things. We go through the motions and 
it fails to change our lives when we walk back out the door. And then number two, or number four, excuse me, two, where did that come from? Number four, most importantly, don't fret. Don't fret. The city of Shushan was perplexed. Proverbs, we'll close with this. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 19. Fret not yourself or thyself because of evil men, neither be thou envious at the wicked. I am commanded, by the way, this is a command, not to fret because of evil men. Don't fret. God's in control. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day and for your love and for the work that you do in our lives.